BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, George, I got the boat ready. You want to go boating with me? George? George? Hello, and welcome to SubDoc. I'm George Chen. And I'm Paco Romain. On today's episode, we talk about the 2007 documentary Deep Water, soon to be a major motion picture. Deep Water is amazing. It's one of those kind of docs where like every few minutes you're like, what? No way. Come on. And to talk about Deep Water is our guest, music journalist, Ned Raggett. Hi, Ned. Hello, how are you hey, doing? Good, thank you. <laughs> Hello there. Ned, you're just you're new to San Francisco, but uh, you've been here a lot. Yes. Uh, you're making you're prepping to come <laughs> here for a while. I was. That's very, very true. But you are you from Southern California? Um, no. If anywhere, I'm actually I'm I'm actually across Puget Sound from Seattle. But that's just because my uh, my dad was in the Navy, and when your dad's in the Navy, you move around a lot. So mm. I was born there essentially by chance because of where my dad was stationed. Uh, he graduated from the Naval Academy in '62 and served a 30 year career, um, and uh, mostly in submarines. And oh, uh, so yeah, that's, okay, yeah, it's helping me figure out the topic choice. So he's an officer, or yes. he's very yeah. high up because I figure like the people that are pe- most people that work in a submarine, their families are not moving to the closest station or where the submarine is. It, it varies. Um, yeah. it uh, so uh, the idea is there's always a home base, and one of the major home bases for uh submarines in the fleet is uh, the Point Loma base down in uh, down in San Diego. If you really want to know more, you can look me up <laughs> on YouTube, look up Ned Raggett Captain Kangaroo. There is the clip of what? me looking uh, You're on Captain Kangaroo. I was on Captain Whoa. Kangaroo. I was, it was filmed on location. We were not in studio, but it's me doing the narration. I'm 11 years old, and wow. it's right before my voice changed, so I sound a little different. I sound more like this. You weren't born with that deep voice, that no. deep, sultry voice? Let's introduce this fella to people. Ned Raggett, a, a music journalist. Uh, yeah, among um, other things, what um, else? What else you do? My job, job is I've worked in the uh, University of California UC system uh, since uh, the mid '90s. Um, I was a grad student in the system down at UC Irvine after graduating from UCLA, so I'm a total lifer. Uh, and I sort of stepped into library work, which is what I had done on a sort of casual, like part-time basis uh, in both high school and college. So something I've always enjoyed. I'm not a librarian. This question comes up a lot. I do not have what's called the MLIS. M- MLIS. Yes, yes, I don't have that degree. Um, so and so I just I am a library assistant, and I'm totally fine with that because uh, when the higher up you get with things, that's when it's more responsibility for budgets and <laughs> turf wars. Classic, and yeah. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm fine. Hey, yeah. I need to be able to post things on the internet all day. <laughs> you utter cynic, Mister Chen. <laughs> hey, and that's why I have my job. Just, if you, yeah, it's like yeah. the Harvey, like the Harvey P. Car. Like is that, there you right? go. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it it pay, it's it's the roof over my head job. It's right. the pay the bill job, but it's also a job I do enjoy. And you worked at KUCI also. Yes, radio? I would. I did college radio at KLA at UCLA from 1989 to 92, um, and uh, many many longstanding friends there, including a uh, current long term uh, KCRW's uh, librarian uh, Eric J. Lawrence, who has his own late night show uh, down there once a week, and has been one of their stalwarts. Great guy. And uh, and then I worked at uh, KUCI from 92 to 2000, and I might have continued. 
reviewed, and frankly, part of me still thinks I really should have done just because of the transition as the as we went onto the web more as well and how that worked. But at the time, my writing was really starting to take off. I had started been writing for a couple of years at that point for the All Music Guide, and I was getting a lot of reaction to that. So it's sort of like, well, my time is kind of split. I'm already doing a full time job. I need to, I need some time to sleep. Where can I sort of focus? And I chose the writing. My name is Ned Ragged. My name is Kara Ragged. My dad has got an unusual job. He's the commander of a nuclear submarine, the USS Pollock. Well, the sub is four stories high. It's very long, although when you look at it from the outside, it doesn't seem so long. Three, three down, bubble. Dive, dive. To have a dad who's the captain of the Navy is pretty fun. You, when I approached you about doing the show, I assume you might want to do like a music documentary and you're just like deep water and I had to look it up. I'm like, oh, okay. What is your connection to this film? Why did you decide to choose it? It was Captain Kangaroo, it? obviously. It was clearly Captain the Kangaroo. The submarine life. And, and all that stuff. So oh, an interest in the sea. Well, hey, my dad was in the Navy and we always lived near the ocean. And it's one of those things that with maybe one or two exceptions, I mentioned upstate New York, but otherwise it's sort of like the, I've always basically been within about five miles of at least a bay or at least, you know, if not one mile, it's sort of like it's always been just there, like over the coastal hills or things like that. So you think about the sea a lot. And ironically, I do not swim <laughs> and all that. So, but I, but I am just one of those people. I love the ocean, and uh, it's just something that you know it, it sinks in. When I was a kid, um, I had a book that my parents got me as a gift. I don't know what prompted it, where it came from. It's called. It was a. It was a great. It was an adaptation of the actual book that this fella had written, but done as sort of more of a more kid-friendly version with lots of photographs. And it was a guy named Robin Lee Graham. He's still alive. And he was a teenager in the mid-60s who sailed around the world alone. At the time, he held the record of the youngest person to do that. Now, um, he was not the first to sail around the world alone. That was another American, a fellow by the name of Joshua Slocum, uh, back in uh, the 1800s. And, uh, you know, some Navy guys know about this. Oh, yeah, it's one of ours and things like that. Um, and uh, Robin Lee Graham just happened to be somebody who, just a few years before I was born, had done this. So this story was fairly well-known and recent. There had been a movie version made of it called Dove, things like that. And it was just this great book. So I remember reading it and just learning about, oh, okay. And he, he did it. A very he did a very understandable trip around the world. He was still a kid, um, you know, mid to late teens, but uh, he he knew his boats and he would go to islands and stop along the way. It was not some sort of like distance run. It wasn't oh, okay. some sort of like thing. It was an actual a circumnavigation, right? It was versus, a circumnavigation, uh, yeah, a nonstop, no land contact. Exactly. Okay. So yeah, so that was so there was something like, well, this is just really interesting. But having said that, I can tell you exactly what prompted the interest in this documentary and in this whole situation. I was coming home from work, somebody across from me on the bus is reading this book with this very interesting title, and it's called The Strange Voyage of Donald Crowhurst. Mm. And I'm thinking, I wonder what that is. I learned something about this case. I'm like, wow, this is interesting. And then I see, oh, there's a documentary that was fairly recently made. And from there, I've, I've watched it a, a few times since, and it's just one of those ones that's really sunk in with me to the point where I now have a copy of this very same book, oh, wow. uh, along with a couple of other books uh, about that race in particular. Do you and recommend the book? 
Yes, I do. So it is actually very good. When I finally read it, because I only read it some years after I saw the documentary, I was thinking, man, this is going to be something, a product of its time. I don't know how well it's going to be. It actually is a very vivid and in-the-moment book, especially since it was done just a couple of years after the race and after the disaster. So it has the advantage of immediacy, but it also reads very well, and it certainly gives even more detail uh, than beyond the film itself can convey mm-hmm. about his background, about what he was trying to achieve, what the goals were, and what happened at the end. And it's uh, really quite striking. So I very much recommend that. I also recommend, and we should definitely talk about him at least a little bit, uh, the book by Bernard Motissier, who is another one of the featured sailors in the film, even though he's not the chief subject, but he very much is the second chief subject. Mm -hmm. Um, He himself was already a French author. He was already published by that time. This was not his first book. He was known as both a bit of an adventurer, someone who had uh, done, he and his wife had actually sailed around the world themselves once already. Um, and uh, and uh, through some very you know hazy deep water, so it's sort of like that's that's how you get to know a person and yeah, all that. that. Is how you... And and, uh, and so he he already had a good command of the language, and he he was a very good writer. And I've only read his book, The Long Way, which is about his take on his experience of the race in translation. Of course, I unfortunately don't speak French, but even in translation, it's quite a remarkable book, and uh, it's a very interesting portrait of his own take on his own particular voyage uh, over time. And he he did a number of books after that point since. He was a fascinating figure. It was interesting yeah. to learn about him through this film. I wouldn't have known of him otherwise. Why don't we take a, a moment and have you, if you don't mind, sure. Ned, uh, just kind of describe exactly, for those people who are going to hear this who haven't actually seen the doc yeah. yet. We sort like, of gone to a lot of things here without getting like into Like, just that, describe yeah. what, what this is the story of. Sure. Okay, so uh, going into it in a bit formal sense, what this is about is about ultimately three participants in what was called the Sunday Times Golden Globe Race. And we were speaking earlier about a fellow, Francis Chichester, who had done a nearly nonstop around the world uh, race. And so the Sunday Times uh, in, in London, England, sponsored the idea of this race and the mechanics we were talking about earlier of a race where it would be open to all comers, you had to leave by October 31st, 1968. Whoever got back first would win a Golden Globe trophy, but whoever was the fastest would get the cash. And the idea was there was no limit beyond the fact it was a sailboat. There was no limit on what type of approach you could do. It just had to be solo. It had to be completely nonstop. And again, it had to be a sailboat. So uh, and so, most of the, the mo- most of the entries were yachts, and that's where Crowhurst's entry is actually interesting because uh, P- Arthur Piver's design is a trimaran. Now, these type of boats are actually more common in such races. I, I learned just by doing some scrounging in more recent times. In a way, Crowhurst was an inadvertent guinea pig for the approach. Although it's one of those things that sort of like the idea came to him. I, I don't know the de- or don't remember the details. I'm sure they're in the book. It just I have read the book. I just can't recall. It's harder to capsize with trimaran? Uh, uh, no, actually, f- I think it might be easier. There's faster, like that. However, though, it goes right? quicker. Yeah, the, the multi-hole approach right. is something, to give you an idea, um, This I only remember this because I remember when the America's Cup was like more of a big thing, although, of course, we, we had it around here recently, um, is that back in the uh, back in the uh, 80s when an Australian team won the America's Cup from America, for the first time in all like 100 plus years of its history, if I'm remembering this correctly, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but in one of the follow-up races, in order to 
get it back or somebody was doing an entry, someone proposed, hey, why don't we do a catamaran? And there was a huge controversy saying, no, wait a minute, it can't be a multi-hole thing. It has to be a single-hole thing like a traditional yacht. So again, there's this idea that it wasn't necessarily the purest approach. Having said that, there was nothing in the rules saying you couldn't do that, uh-huh. which is one reason. And this is an earlier race, too. So as opposed to a specific in-and-out yachting race like the America's Cup. So the idea is, hey, whatever works. Uh-huh. So this was seen to be a little like out of the, you know, maybe out of the ordinary, but it wasn't something that made them go, A dog no. playing basketball? <laughs> <Yeah>. What? <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't something where it was they were going like, no, you can't nothing do this. Nothing in the rule here. book yeah. says this dog can't be a multi-hole dog. <laughs> multi-hole dog? There, there's a band name. I feel like what the film sets up is like they're not like foils necessarily, but mm-hmm. just like Morticia is going in it for different reasons mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. Donald is going in for it. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and then there's Robin Knox Johnson who has his own reasons. And then there's Nigel Tetley, who's sort of the mystery figure who isn't talked about as much. Yeah. And there are reasons for that, which I can go into. Uh, but, uh, he's yeah, sort of did the anyone else, factor. did anyone else die out of the nine that went in? Nobody died outside of Crowhurst himself. I guess right. at this point, if you haven't figured out Crowhurst isn't with us anymore, there you go. <laughs> but, um, yeah. spoiler. but, uh, but yeah, spoiler, but, um, but, uh, but, but uh, Tetley uh, did not live long afterwards, as a matter of fact. So when, his, when his boat sunk, he did not... No, he did not he, die. He, he was, was the last the, the last one to come in. He was the last one that was going to come in before Crowhurst was going to mm-hmm. come in. Right, and he was the one that if he had kept his pace, he would have won the money. He would not have won the Golden Globe, which is the uh, which was the fr- that went first to the person arrival. who actually came back first, and that yeah. was Knox Johnson. He was yeah. the one who made it back first. If uh, Tetley had made it all the way and then Crowhurst, Tetley would have actually had the fastest pace out of all of them, and he would have won a five thousand uh, five thousand pound uh, prize, which at that point, given inflation, is a good chunk of change, and yeah. uh, and they would have established a pretty clear record. He also had the most British of all the names of very Nigel Tetley, yeah. <laughs> well i know robin knox johnson is a pretty british name but too but nigel mean, nigel tetley does sound like you know get more british than nigel tetley yeah, you, know, you know t and just, things like this yeah. so. well you didn't have to be british to be in the race oh no right? no there were there was french obviously yeah. there was an italian uh, competitor yeah. i want to say one of them might have been american but i, I don't think so i think you just had to leave from london or from the uk you had to leave from the uk yeah. and the idea was you had to leave to, ex- to explain more about the race it's all in wikipedia but explain more about the race there was no way to sort of say okay everyone start at the same time go Although I think at these points, these days, you, you can do that, or they do try and do that. In this case, since the idea was we're offering it up, and you have to leave by October 31st, 1968. The rationale being that if you left any later, by the time you got down to the Roaring Forties, which is uh, the, the around the the Antarctic Ocean, essentially, just you know, towards uh, towards Antarctica. Yeah, you're not going to make it. Yeah, because the seas would just be too rough. Um, the and and this, in case anyone has any questions, it, the route is specifically avoiding both the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal. The idea being that if you do that. Well, if it's a nonstop race and you know you can land, you're kind of hitting land. <laughs> it's sort of yeah, what it is. Right. So this is the, yeah, this is the way to do it. And you can't do it through the Arctic on a sailboat, so you have to do it this route. This oh, is your right. only option. So, um, so that's the reason why the route is where it is. So you had to leave by October 31st, 1968, and it didn't matter when you left. So it's sort of like if you left at one time, great. They're not counting when you leave versus when you come back. It's sort of like okay, how many days did it take you? Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's sort of like it wait. It had to wait for everyone to either finish or withdraw or, right. or be unable to complete. And it's a non-stop literally around the world. Right. Race. And that was the thing. Yeah, as the, the very the very first prelude part of the film explains, a fellow named Francis Chish- 
Chichester. Chichester. Had, right. uh, there's another English yeah. name. Uh, he had done. He had done. He had done nearly that. He had done. Uh, he had set off on his own, and then everyone realized, "Hey, wait! This guy's done something here." And when he came back, it was you know, hugely celebrated. He didn't go off being thinking like, "Oh, here's this big thing." It was more like everyone realized he yeah. had almost pulled it off. Because the doc actually opens with that, right? Yeah, you the see doc. the you see the footage he gets of that. Knighted. Yeah, he got knighted. He, yeah, so he gets knighted. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty impressive. And uh, that's sort of like, well, hey, there's something here. And because he had stopped in Australia and done some refits, that was his one stop. It was sort of like, okay, you know, he wasn't out necessarily to do a nonstop thing. He yeah. might have, he might have well, been, but who he hasn't hit a little reefer once in a while? Well, you know, hey, oh, oh, oh. I, I think that this is like a very beautiful film. It's aesthetically, mm. it's I mean, it's the ocean, so yes. it's aesthetically very pleasing. And then just the a couple of the visual. Uh, things they do with like the the diary, the mm-hmm. log, mm-hmm. I think are nice, and then music. The music's nice, the incidental music. So it's very pretty, yeah, the whole time. But you do have like this like note of like this can't be a good ending. There's no <laughs> right. way there's a happy ending to this. No, it's you can feel you can feel the march of the story mm-hmm. as the doc progresses. You know something's just it can't just be like so, and then somebody won the race. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, Ron Winspear, I believe his name was, who was the friend of uh, Crowhurst is uh, it's his he's he's uh, he does some voiceover at the beginning which is repeated later in the film when they do show him in the interview bit, but it serves as sort of a preface going like telling about the delicate mechanism of the mind. You're like mm. Mm, there there's a sign and just yeah. sort of just lightly ominous. And as the doc documentary progresses you realize you're getting interviews from uh from uh Crowhurst's wife Crowhurst's son but you're also getting interviews from Motissier's wife and you're noticing like, okay where are these people yeah. because Robin Knox Johnson is of course interviewed throughout yeah. as well and he was one of the competitors and so you're thinking well maybe they've just passed and all that in Motissier's case he had by that time had passed some years beforehand yeah. Crowhurst's case when you finally realize exactly what happened you're like <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and they, so yeah. I was saying earlier uh that if I was too title this documentary i would have titled it wait what mm-hmm. like i kept saying that <laughs> mm-hmm. as the documentary Me too. Yeah. i was like you've wait watching on. it alone in my yeah. room oh I, yeah i was like there's moments of just sitting up and being like i had to just like sit up yeah physically. <laughs> i have rarely um uh like uh scrubbed a documentary back Mm-hmm. Like like rewound basically, mm-hmm. which you and it, but it's like I was like okay, wh- I gotta re I gotta watch that again. Like what just happened? Mm-hmm. Like what did mm-hmm. she just say? You know mm-hmm. and like and it's so compelling too because they talk to uh, Crowhurst's son mm-hmm. and there's so many uh, archival footages of of them with with their dad right. ready to, for the voyage to start mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like getting his ship ready. And you, I mean, it's like looking at an accountant. Being like, I'm gonna go and run with the bulls or something. It's like, dude, right, you are yeah. so up against it. The the Fleet Street guy is a character. Oh, oh man, yeah. I love uh, that dude. Yeah, he's yeah. so. Cl- What's I mean, his goddamn name. I can't remember, but he looks like he should have been managing the Led Zeppelin. He's got that yeah. kind of like feel to him. Holworth, yeah, Rodney Holworth. That was his name, Rodney, Ro- Rodney Holworth. And yeah, no, and they, it's good that we have. It's good that we have some footage of him. I, I like the fact that the first bit of footage of him that we have the interview is explaining his job as a PR guy, and he's just there going like. Well, you see, people do remarkable things sometimes, and themselves are just very, very dull. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got to dress it up a bit Christmassy. Yeah, and I'm yeah. thinking, on the one hand, wow. On the other hand, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's sort of like, you know, hey, there you go. Hey, <laughs> as, a, as a music journalist, you have gotten the the whole worst of the world, like sending you their uh, dull people. <laughs> if as, I named names, my career uh, would be over. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, 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 
it, it's the nature of the beast. Sometimes yeah. you got something that's sort of like, okay, who are you doing? You got to sell this guy. What? Oh my goodness! And then you yeah. got to put a brave face on it. And in this case, yeah, Hallworth. And again, I uh, I recommend if anyone if you anyone watches the documentary, do a little reading about it and with some of the books and all that. There's a little more about Hallworth and that about what type of character he was and all that. He was everything to describe a Fleet Street reporter connections, PR hype guy, and all that. It goes into more about how he was very specifically associated with the area with uh, Tinmouth, the town that was from, was definitely trying to hype them up and all that. Yeah, and the sense like of commercial total, pressure yeah. that's looming over Crowhurst, which is really talked about in detail, is really fascinating because, of course, there's both Hallworth and then there's Stanley Best, who was right. a sponsor. The sponsor. And yeah. it was just sort of like, I think it just sinks some money into, into it. And the yeah. idea, and as the film talks about, if he, if the idea was is that if Crowhurst if Crowhurst completed the race but didn't win, a bummer, but, you know, he made his best effort. Or he made a best effort of it and didn't wake. But if he had just gone out and then come straight back or just withdrawn beforehand, then basically Best was going to say, like, okay, I sunk all this money into it. I'm taking it back. and would have taken essentially... Take your control, house. Taking the, taking the boat, taking the house. And Crowhurst was self-employed and had a couple of things in development. And the book, if I remember right, it mentions that a couple of his inventions were just starting to, like, take off. It's almost a sort of sad irony. If he had waited a bit longer, decided not to go, he may have gotten over that hump almost without realizing it. Who knows whether it would have been a total smash success, but it might have been enough for him to sort of build on and try something else. Do you know what the technologies were that he was working on? Because yeah. that's the thing that I wasn't quite getting. Like, how like a sex tent or something. It's yeah, no, like a... it was... I'll do a quick uh, check right here. Something that would have helped... Yeah, no, it was it was a navigational tool, is what I remember right. This is mentioned in the book in more detail, as opposed to uh, right. as opposed to there. I'm trying to look it up right here. So the idea is that like he would have been his his circumnavigation would have showed that his technology worked. It would promote him. His design of the boat would have been the boat. Yeah, I can't, I part think, of it. I can't remember if he had fully designed the boat or was like one of the ones who just sort of like you know had uh, he had yeah, it the customized. Boat yeah. Yeah. yeah, according to this, according to hey Wikipedia, um, according to this, it was uh, designed by a Californian uh, boat designer Arthur oh, okay. Piver is his name. However, what uh, Crowhurst had developed, it says here, it's designed designed and built a radio direction finder called the Navigator back in back in the sixties, a handheld device that allowed the user to take bearings on marine and aviation radio beacons. He says he had some success selling the equipment, but his business began to fail, which is why he wanted to get some publicity thinking, well, why not go into the race, which may seem a little extreme for publicity, yes. but hey, you know, mm -hmm. needs must. I mean, he just made this decision. And the film, you know, this is going back to the film now, because again, this is sort of like stepping away from the film. If you don't know this, well, wait a minute, shouldn't I be knowing this? But the film, without going into that, does give a more into Crowhurst's character, talking about his uh, upbringing in India, uh, the mm -hmm. fact that uh, when his family moved back to England, um, their money went very quickly. It was post-war time his father died uh, when Crowhurst was still very young and and his uh, his wife his widow Claire um, talks about uh uh, Crowhurst widow, not his father's. Um, it talks about how they said they were, you know, that like there was enough to eat on, but they were skint. In other yeah. words, slang for just well, barely four getting kids. by. Yeah, yeah it's just sort of like you know, living out in the country, yeah. a little away from everything and all that, but still, you know, just sort of you know, skin of your teeth type yeah. thing. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you 
with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. I remember going on a small rowboat with my brothers and my sister and my father kissing us goodbye. It wasn't a feeling of sadness so much as excitement. But I suppose there, there was a feeling also at the back of my mind, well, you don't quite know what's going to happen next. One of the more remarkable things about the film, and one of the things I really deeply love about it is this. Both Crowhurst and, uh, and Motissier had film. They had uh, yeah. 8mm or whatever it was, but they had very good film. And Motissier's footage that he took on is remarkable. It is just, the colors are incredibly vivid. There are just these footage of him, just uh, like he's just this incredibly lean, fit guy, just sort of Climbing like falling over mass. around. There's this yeah. thing from the top of the mast looking down the boat, just ripping yeah. through the ocean. When the dolphins are swimming yeah. up alongside these beautiful sunsets, there's a shot off of just, you know, him from the boat looking towards Cape Horn. There's all this just insane footage just in the in the in the lower oceans where it looks like the boat is going to be just crashed in on any time like over and over again just because of the waves down there oh, he yeah. mentions like 15 story waves it, or it's, 12 story waves it's or huge like that. yeah yeah Rock yeah. Johnson says imagine you're in the size something the size of a truck and a like 10 15 story building is heading towards yeah. you that's the size of the waves and perspectives I mean imagine and that's something it's not like oh one huge wave oh, I got through that no, that's your everything. day that's yeah. all, that's days yeah. that's that could be weeks that's too much they kind of liken it to the space race at one point early on right. I think mm-hmm. that's also like that's an apt yeah. thing you could compare it to like if, if it's a the guy time. Yeah. if a guy had like an investor would be like, you're going to go to the moon. Uh, you're going to go by yourself. Yeah. Here's the money. Mm-hmm. If you don't go, mm-hmm. we're going to take your house. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, that's yeah, yeah. what it was. It's the whole thing like, you know, uh, like uh, Knox Johnson, who uh, was the eventual winner. I mean, that was his boat. So yeah. Haley was his boat. And it's also, he, you could argue he was in some respects the best set up of all the racers for this simple reason. Um, uh, you, you you might notice there was a whole point they're talking about the uh, the wives and partners that were left behind. and things mm-hmm. like The this. widows. The, yeah, the sea widows. But but Knox Johnson doesn't have one. There was a reason for that. He was separated from his wife at the time. Mm-hmm. In fact, arguably, he went on he went on, he went went on on the voyage <laughs> as sort of a chance to clear his head and do something. They reconciled after he came oh, back. Bit yeah. of a walkabout. Yeah, as it yeah, were, and yeah. all that. So, well, yeah, maybe better than some, just go out and float in a boat for a while and win a race. And yeah. well, she reputation. knows that he wasn't hooking up with anyone. <laughs> There's no there Tinder on the seas. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I don't know the exact details, but this is part of his known biography that this is what happened. That he was, he himself was, you know, he was already known to be a sailor. He was a merchant marine guy. And so he did he this. He had a lot of experience. Yeah. And, and he, and, you know, and he, I believe he's still alive. And he's just been known for his, uh, just, you know, just for his racing and his, you know, his authority since then. Well, they this ta- put him on the map. They so. talked to him in the dock. Yeah. 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 Oh, he's in, he, he, yeah, in they 06, interviewed him then. Yeah. yeah so, and, 
and chance he and does. and his in his attitude is at the time he was seen to be this almost bluff caricature of a sort of like you know <laughs> type thing all that and I find his reactions are sort of like you can tell there's a quiet confidence there but he doesn't come across as arrogant he comes across as extremely knowing like one of my uh, like uh, one of my favorite comments from him says anybody who goes to sea and says they're not afraid is a liar mm-hmm. and I think he says it in a very sort of look. Right. This is the way it is, right? And you know, he he would know he did right. all that stuff. Well, I didn't I didn't, th- I didn't find him to be like arrogant or anything. Oh no, no, yeah. I think I think it was more like not a again not a stereotype at the time. He played the bluff sailor type, yeah. is my oh, understanding at the time. He still alive. Well, As of this recording, still alive. All right, yeah, seventy six years old. And they yeah. uh, they also make a point of saying like Motissier says, if you get into this race for fame and fortune, you're a fool and you'll yeah, yeah. break your neck. That's, yeah. that's, that's word, I yeah. think what it ends up being. And they try right. to set that up a yeah. lot more as well. Yeah. And so so, I was going to say, it yeah. seems to me like it's really about the psychology of this guy. Yeah, yes, and getting exactly. and, 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 the whole movie. Is yeah, really. you're getting into Crowhurst, and Crowhurst is somebody who, again, is is on his own ground, right? But then he's basically sent out into an isolation chamber, yeah, a self-willed isolation mm-hmm. chamber, or the horizon, right? The full and, horizon. And what you get is you get over the film, you get three of these people in each different ways and how they react to it. Motissier finds himself and basically goes on his vision quest. Then you have Knox Johnson, who's sort of like, well, here's the big adventure. Oh, I'm, it's, uh, me and my wife is split up. I'll just do this thing, and it's the voyage, and let's see what I can do for England. Tatley. I forget where Tetley's background is. And Tetley, again, is kind of the interesting mystery figure. A little more upper class, certainly had the name and all that. And I think was more a form, was a naval officer and things like this. And that's the type of thing in England still, which, you know, there's, but even more especially then, was, uh, you know, had a certain thing about it. And Crowhurst was, again, was sort of like a, a scrapper, you know, he was sort of like you know coming up, you know, cold, a very, DIY, very much so, and all that, and he had sort of was finding his way, but you know, again, only going so far. Getting back to the aesthetics of the film and the and putting it together, one reason why the film succeeds is not merely, indeed, some very very lovely footage filmed with modern cameras, um, excellent music, mm. but what's interesting to my mind, and I only really checked this out a couple of nights ago when I finally rewatched the documentary again after a long time as I I remember there were a couple of songs in the film that weren't uh, that weren't by this by this duo. There were added uh, songs, uh, mm-hmm. uh, source songs, and there were three total. And the choice of all three of them is very interesting. The f- most well known is a cello song by Nick Drake. This is a song from Nick Drake's first album, uh, Five, Five Leaves, Leaves Left. Five yeah. Leaves Left. It is called the cello song because indeed cello features on it, as well as Nick Drake's own guitar and a small bit of percussion, and that's it. It's a really lovely song. It uh, it's it like, is dun, 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 dun. that mm-hmm. one, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And where it matches in the setting, it's sort of it's 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 used to show each of the racers at where they're at in the race about halfway through. Robin Knox Johnson is interviewed by New Zealand TV because a TV crew went out there on a boat and interviewed right. him in the ocean and they're shouting at each other back and forth across the water yeah, so you get yeah. what is he what do you want when you get yeah, back what are you yeah. back he's like he's British beer. Beer. Yeah. beer I love that it's like yeah. I miss English beer yeah. you're like, near Australia <laughs> you yeah. have beer. a Faustus yeah. yeah yeah so he's sort of like what I like is they do that and then they have the footage of that little fo- photograph of Tetley and Tetley's like it must have been Christmas or something because he's got this full meal along with, with some oh god yeah. Like, yeah and that's why I'm like dude and that song it should be noted mm-hmm. is from 69 if I remember right so it's that year Mm-hmm. And this, I think, is an interesting theme to the film. It's well, starting the movie with no context, I didn't know, you know, what time period we were dealing with. Yeah, with Deepwater. 
Yeah, and I didn't either. You couldn't really tell from the footage exactly like right. what time period it was. I think using Nick Drake music with like someone who had like sort of a sad demise of their own that adds another layer to it. What was the other music that you noted in that? The other two songs that are specifically licensed that were not done for the film but were like you know mm-hmm. other songs of time. One is when Robin Knox Johnson comes in for a win. It's a very sprightly like you know just sort of like cheery acoustic guitar number. Uh-huh. It's a Cat Stevens song. Oh. It's a Cat Stevens instrumental B side called Crab Dance. And it's a great song on its own. It's this very sprightly, upbeat. Mm-hmm. Again, all it's not just him. It's there's a little bit of orchestration, and it's actually one of the best Cat Stevens songs I've ever heard. It's sort of like, oh, oh okay, credit to the guy. He really can play. I mean, yeah, this yeah. is really good stuff, yeah. and it fits. Yeah. It's a very sort of just quietly triumphant. Hey, it's all good. We've come in one type thing. Mm-hmm. The final one, which is used a couple of times, is uh, from a group. Although it's really by a, uh, it's really by one guy. And the group was called Jam and Fam, and he was an Algerian. Uh, violinist who I believe is still alive uh, and uh, is uh, this is only not even 20 years old so he just you know, I'm still performing Algerian but I believe based in I believe based in France um, uh, Jamel Ben Yelis is his name the song is called She Left Home and it's from this one album it's got this, this lovely piano. It's the type of thing that's sort of like, okay, just sort of nice, you know, new age into down tempo, late 90s type stuff. But then this really haunting, beautiful stringed instrument part comes in, and that's his violin. And it's interesting because it's essentially associated in the film, for the most part, with Motissier. Right. And he has a different theme. Okay. And it's, it's almost his own theme, and it works for this reason. Uh, Motissier is, is French, but... The Algerian connection is kind of interesting. Yeah. He's not originally from Algeria, but he wasn't originally from France. He was born and raised in what's now Vietnam, uh-huh. in what at the time was still French Indochina, so because it was still colonial. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, and all that fun. So with, with that as a, you know, <laughs> all but, but with that as a background, it's interesting choosing something from another even more notably, you know, cool. and notably bloody. In, in the 60s. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I just thought it's too enormous to take on something like that. I didn't give it some serious thought. But there is a moment when an opportunity arises. And if you don't grasp it, that's it.
they they mentioned that if Crowhurst had one, he was had to have his books in line, right. which would have been a daily log of all of mm-hmm. the longitude latitudes where he was, right? Right. And and the evidence is that he was working on just that. He was in fact creating a logbook, a second log, yeah. a second log. Because as I mentioned earlier, the idea is that he realizes, okay, if I go any further, I'm going to drown. So what he does is he's been reporting back how he's been doing, saying, "Ah, going slow and all that." All of a sudden, essentially, from everyone else's point of view, the cat, the trimaran rather, works. He's starting to set these records. He's on pace. The race is on. 260 miles in a day. AR 243, I think is what it is. Yeah, Yeah, something like that. And he's establishing some records, and he's doing really well. He gets to the point where he says, well, the radio's giving me trouble. I will get him contact you when I can. And he drops away for a bit, and everyone's like, well, I hope he's out there. And everyone's crossing their fingers. And then at a certain time, he pops back up again saying, okay, everything's good, and he's heading on in, and that's where it goes. So that's that's what the public knows what's going on. And again, it's the idea is like, oh, hey, the trimaran bet paid off. Now, Chichester, who we keep mentioning, who was the guy who had done the thing that sort of set up the race, he was going to be on the judging committee. This is not pointed out in the film, but he was going to be one, he was one oh. that was on the committee. He openly was questioning these results. Really? During the time. Oh. Yeah, who knows if it got back to him? I forget if it's might have been mentioned in the book and all that, but Chichester was going like, I need to see some real good proof here. I'm sorry. And let's face it, the dude had just done the ver- just version done race it. himself. Yeah. And so he was probably going like, and again, Crowhurst was not known to be a sailor. He was sort of projected more of an idea of a sailor than he was. He did some sailing, but he was not some sort of deep sea sailor. Yeah, he had never exactly. done anything like this. Chichester had. He was going like, okay, you know, so he was expressing yeah. some doubts. And again, this is the ni- late 1960s. The proof would have lied in the logbook and how Crowhurst would have come across. If Crowhurst would have been able to bluff it his way through it, all that, who knows, and all that. Yeah. But what the film also points out is that even if he had done that, at one point, in utter need, he basically pulls into an isolated port in Argentina. Yeah. And basically, no matter what, yeah, that is sort of like, okay, he gets back and the only time that he actually is in touch with actual living human beings again before the end of the race and all that is, and, but he breaks the rules and like, no matter what else, no matter what else, faking the rules and all that, he broke the rules. He pulled into port. Right. The end. Yeah. And if he had done it at that point, well, what would have happened is if he had done it at that point and it were to gotten out or he just called and says, sorry, I'm here. What would have happened is sort of like, wait a minute, you said you were over here. Why are you here? You would have had to explain that and everything would have gone worse. Had he done it maybe at a later point in the race or everything was around or was near the area where he was supposed to be at the time and he just pulled in there, he could have been sort of like, well, I made it this far, but that was it. Even if he'd been floating out in the Atlantic away from everybody for a while and all that. And then it's sort of like, well okay yeah. and all that but the point is you know he he, he, he broke the rules twice he didn't do he, he didn't do the full route and he pulled into port yeah so he's basically carrying on this extensive cover-up these his friend Winspear in the film is basically saying it's a game he was trying to see how far he could get away with this put on a good show see what would happen and then basically everything starts going wrong even though it seems to be going right for him at the same time Knox Johnson gets back home but Knox Johnson is not fast enough to to claim uh, at least at that point to claim the fight thousand dollar price he gets home first he gets the globe he gets a bit of glory but that's all he's gonna get 312 days they yeah, said that yeah. took him yeah that's, so it's incredible just you know that's like you know just imagine that so, so the best scenario for him is to just finish mm-hmm. but not be investigated right, right. yeah to, and to, just to, to like be able to 
go back to his family and mm-hmm. have no questions asked. Yeah, but then but then everything starts happening wrong for him further because Matissier drops out by going on. So right. he's out of the race yeah. because he's just still going. Okay, that leaves Tetley. My understanding, and I'd have to do some double checking on this, is that Tetley knew what was going on, knew it was down to him and Crowhurst who apparently going in there and knew that he could win. Tetley was pushing himself in the boat to try and win. He wasn't just simply like, okay, I'll make a good go of it. He was actually going like, damn, of course it's coming up and I could get the 5,000. Holy oh. hell. I got to get make sure I get in here and just sort of seal this. Beat he him, pushed yeah. it too far and then he, the boat sinks. Uh-huh. And his boat sinks. But when his boat sinks, like, okay, well, I made it this far and he gets rescued and everything's fine. And he gets home and all that. And he's like, all right. But then that means the pressure's now on course because, again, the three people in the race, Notch Johnson has won but wouldn't beat for time, right. reported time. Notice has continued on, Tetley is sunk. Crowhurst apparently is heading for home and is going to win everything and that means he is going to win for the fastest time everything's going to be investigated oops well (laughs) they also mentioned that crowhurst was biting time he didn't he wanted uh tetley to get in there totally he was hoping and praying he he wanted tetley to do it he wasn't like if if he had been able to like somehow tell tetley please go right ahead i'm just gonna lollygag here and take it easy and i've got problems with my boat which you know maybe that would do it but there's maybe there was no way to do that you just sort of have to rely on what everyone else is hearing so Crowhurst is getting the radio contact from land. That's Incredibly irregularly. About, yeah, yeah, but mm-hmm. when he gets the information that Tetley's dropped out. He gets the information that his son is sort of like, you know, they get a hold of him, you're going to win. Yeah. And that's where oh, everything man. goes wrong. That's once more. <laughs> once Another more. turn. <laughs> yeah. Instant for poor karma, Donald. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the, the book goes into much more detail about this. We've mentioned, we've mentioned his log, the log that he was purporting to report everything down in terms of what his voyage was. The actual log, which was found, which we'll talk about, tells the real story. And that's the advantage. We have the films from Cohurst. We have this audio from Cohurst that's meant to be what the journey should have been. But we have a log saying his own private thoughts about what actually happened. And the audio recordings, some of them are stuff that I'm sure he did not actually intend for the BBC to get. Some of them definitely were. There was that one very drunk, drunk one, yeah. and there was that other ones there. Oh, he is drunk, Oh, he too. is out of it. There is, there's, in one of the reports, when the film originally ran and all that, it obviously had his family's participation, but there he had three sons and a daughter. Apparently, when it screened and his daughter heard that segment, she just couldn't stand it because of just the whole, like, you know, again, loss oh, of her dad. So all that. She had to leave. It was just so like, you know, just sort of like, oh, my God, because it's somebody who's falling apart. Yeah. Is yeah. what it is is uh, and and that's the thing too because we only have the we do have some recordings but the majority of what we know about Crowhurst's collapse as much as can be known is what he wrote down. Now you can think about people who are on the edge or like scribbling madly in notebooks and all that. That's kind of what happened here. He wrote obsessively, and again the book the the book about his about his life and death uh, is it goes into it much more detail um, uh, about what he was writing down and just these just. On the one hand, you could say they were inspired, but they're not. They're a guy who's losing his grip in the middle of the ocean, realizing that is is he can't is, go back to land. He can't go back to land. His right. deception's about played up, and it's sort of like and is, and is and you and that's one very poignant thing about the film, and that's and that's something else I should note too. I've seen this film a few times, and every time I see it, I regard Crowhurst in a slightly different light. It's mm. not on a grade of change. Mm. Yeah. It's more so like sometimes uh, once or twice I've seen it. <clears throat> and he comes across. I, I I I look at him incredibly unsympathetically right. because I'm like, dude, you threw over your wife right. and four young kids, yeah. and all that. You could have come pride. in, yeah, out of pride or yeah. out of things, all that. And I realize that yes, it would have all come up. You would have lost that, but 
no, dude, yeah. you know, I'm sorry. It's sort of like, yeah, it's almost sort of like the same way that Richard Dreyfuss in, uh, and he talks about the role in, they did in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He said that he and Spielberg both agree now. It's sort of like that when he leaves with the spaceship at the end and all that, he says, now I realize, no, wait a minute, he was abandoning his family. Yeah, I don't think we yeah. would do that ending anymore. Yeah. It's sort of like, this is almost <laughs> what it feels like. It's like, uh, you sure no, he here? seems like a complete asshole. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you actually can go back to land. You, you already can. did it once in Argentina. Yeah. Like, yeah. you can do that you again. You could have had a second family in Argentina. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so sometimes I look at I look at it very much in that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And I sort of like, oh, dude, you know, you do it. But then I try and sort of like look at the other times where you can t- thinking through his family's lens, who obviously yeah. they're sort of like you know they're they're grief stream, but also you know perspectives that they might have, and the fact that he clearly was wrestling with it. He was not. Un, he was not immune to this. Yes. It wasn't like he was just writing them all off. He is the quote the quotes in in the film from his diary that are read by another actor. Obviously, not him. This was not something he recorded. This is what he record. Uh, was somebody reading what it, from his diaries. Um, just talking about thinking about his family, what it meant. It obviously they were very important to him, but it just it the fact that he stopped talking about them towards the end. It was almost a sense of that you know something gave. Well, he'd been alone for so long. He'd been alone. He could he couldn't get a hold of his wife near the end. The yeah. transmissions were not working, and again, he was not that far from home. He was he could have made it home as far as we know. The boat was yeah. still afloat. Yeah. The seas were good enough. He could have made it home if he chose. He chose not to. He just basically, something gave, and we're not too sure what, and that's the thing. We don't know. Everything is supposition beyond what we know from the logs, and what happens is is that his last reported position happens, the boat is let go, and at some point up until the day when, because he was obsessively you know, writing in and, and logging his time and date in the diaries, is that he, he ends with this it was one of the first things I heard about it when I started reading about the case. It's a weird, chilling, like this. It's, it's it's both dramatic and melodramatic, and and also really creepy at the same time. He ends with the words "It is finished. It is finished," and then in all caps, "It is the mercy." And you're like, dude. Whoa. And then yeah. and, and there's a nice little, little like you know little end thing at the end after this huge spiritual metaphysical yeah. thing. These does there's God there's, and the devil. And yeah, yeah there, there's bits from it quoted without, and you're sort of like, oh man, you're just trying to imagine this guy somewhere just in the middle of the ocean gone and right. he's writing all this out and just floating around just away from everybody it's like and then and then we don't know how he died we just don't know just all don't that know. is known is that he's there not people, on the boat he's not on the boat yeah and the log that he was recording his false journey in apparently is not found either all that's found oh, is is was not apparently he took it with him or oh. it fell over or whatever all that is found is the real log well, what actually happened. Mm. So conceivably, what could have happened, who knows? I mean, it's almost like Kroerst wanted his story to be found, but didn't know if it would be. We can't know. We don't know what happened. Uh, his wife, uh, his widow, I should say, apparently believed that ultimately his death was accidental as opposed to inc- as intentional. Other people believe it was flat-out suicide. Yeah, It might have been something where he just simply stopped and then that's it, and then just, oh, whether uncaring and all that. She, and we have to allow for her interpretation, too, mm-hmm. and all that. We can't say for sure. The, the film just makes it clear that He's gone, and his body was not well. But found. they also yeah. mentioned that he lets the the ship go drift he does, in, in yeah. the Sargasso Sea, Sargasso yeah. Sea, which is famous for being inundated with with um, like seaweed. And, yeah, yeah. You know, so you get caught in the sea. In it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they and what is really really compelling and very sad and beautiful. It's weird is that they show they they, they know where it is. His yeah. boat. 
Yeah, it's and the, it's in the Canary Islands, right? And it, it one of, it's somewhere in the Caribbean. Yeah. What happens is is that the boat the boat was found, and one reason why I think the story is maybe not as well known in America, um, because it's a very you know interesting story, although it was known at the time, is that it the boat was found and brought in, and the truth about everything came out just a couple of days before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. Oh, Check right. the dates; it's right yeah. in there. Yeah, it's sort of like whoa. So basically, it's sort of like oh wow, this boat. Oh whoa, whoa, hey, you know, moon launch, you know, yeah. and all that, and that rather takes over the popular memory, yeah. especially if you're in America. Yeah. So uh, and uh, so over in England, it was you know it was definitely profile news, but you know over there yeah. too. And as Paco was saying, that the movie ends really on a, a truly remarkable note, where the last footage you see is the wrecked footage of is there is the, the showing the wreck of the of the Tinmouth Electron, which was the name of the trimaran, because it just was unclaimed, is now sitting somewhere just in on this Caribbean island, and that's where it is. The end. To to this day. To this day, as far as you we can know, go it see might it be falling apart. So usually this is how we end our yeah. <laughs> uh, talk with uh, uh, asking our guests if they could recommend a documentary. Yes, um, I, I was going to say I was going to do two, but I realized I can do three. So I'll, okay. I'll, I'll try, try not to take too long in each of these, but uh, each of these are all important uh, in their own ways. Since normally you guys do music documentaries as such, and I think that was the idea when you were just asked me if I was going to do that. So. Yeah, I mean, like we everyone does whatever. Okay, things yeah. like that. So yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you're expecting that, but just yeah, something. Yeah. A, a good documentary that came out 10 years ago, kind of before the current boom, and I think is actually good, especially, probably especially because the band is seen as such a light these days by a lot of people, is the one on the Flaming Lips, The Fearless Freaks. I do recommend it because, as I was saying a bit earlier, is that even if you don't like the band at all, even if you didn't like music, or weren't much of sort of like rock band, whatever, and all that, it's an interesting story about a small group of Americans from, from Oklahoma, from, from Oklahoma mm-hmm. and what they pursued in life and their, their path in life. I think and, Will knows about that. Our engineer. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I think it's a really remarkable film for that regard. Now, there's a lot about it, especially if you, especially if these days, if Wayne Coyne kind of drives you up the wall, right. there might be moments in where you're like, okay, and all, especially as it gets closer to the previous, uh, to the current point. But a lot of the story about his background, how he interacts, especially with his family, because his brother was the original singer and another brother is featured uh, in the film and uh, who's clearly on a much different path and things like that. And I, and just also about his context. It's his, it's his earnestness. It's a very much a coinish earnestness, you could say. Mm-hmm. But it's less of his sort of like, you know, hey, I'm tripping out here. It's more sort of like trying to speak in a very down-to-earth, matter-of-fact way that I think is maybe a bit lost but still been present. And Michael Ivins, the bassist, is good, is good in this well. But Stephen Drozd, uh, his story is very good in the film. I won't go into it much uh, further there because I think it has to be experienced. But I will say that it's known that he has struggled with drugs and addiction. Okay. This was still during that time. It's a fairly blunt portrayal. Is it self-produced? Is it like they did it themselves? No. Uh, the name of... Uh, what was the name of the filmmaker? Yin, you, Beasley? Uh, Brad Beasley. Brad Beasley, yes. Brad Beasley is someone who was also from Oklahoma City and ended up directing a lot of the Flame Loose videos and they okay. still do that over time. So he was in some right. respects the in-house guy to a degree, but he was his own filmmaker and so he was sort of logical person to be the one to to tell this stuff Mm -hmm. and it comes together very well so i would recommend it i think it's again even you don't like the band or you know all that i think there's something to this particular film that that still works um now the other thing i'll do this this is more a concert film but i think it's deeply deeply underrated as a documentary and as a particular piece of film work is depeche mode 101 (laughs) now i'm a massive freaking depeche mode fan (laughs) massive i would love it no matter what i saw a violator tour hey there you go i've I've seen that and every tour since (laughs) i miss this tour though this is the music for the masses tour this is this it culminates in their big huge rose bowl show which at the time nobody expected them to do they filled it out it was an insane show you can see it all there 
Yeah, yeah, it's before. before, And that's the thing about it. Everyone thinks about this is you you see a crowd going nuts for Depeche Mode going completely bugfuck insane, and it's not Violator. That was Mm -hmm. the album to come. They play this amazing set, and you're like, wait a minute, all the even bigger hits are going to be down the road. It's interesting seeing a band so clearly on an uptick in such a massive fashion. But what's interesting about this is, and this is not as well remembered, it's a Pennebaker film. Mm. Oh. And you see, the thing is, Panabaker, of course, has his rep. What does he have his rep for? For, you know, uh, for Don't Look Back, right. for uh, for the Monterey Pop films, for the uh, for uh, for the Bowie films. And he seemed to be sort of like, oh, yes, the legends of rock and all that. But he was approached and he was interested in, and he and his team, which also includes his partner, Chris Hedegadis, um, went on the road and uh, did that and did and filmed this and did it in a Panabaker style. So it's not like Anton Corbine is the filmmaker who has since become most associated with the Pesh Mode, having done right. all their videos and done most of their concert films since as well, um, along with other things, stage design, all this. So to have Pennebaker come in with his own eye, and again, this is 88, and the band is only eight years old, essentially, at that point, although, again, already getting to be this thing. Yeah. And Pennebaker coming in from a position of, well, I hadn't realized they were this huge. Let's see what's going on. And to see those techniques applied to Depeche in this case, and to applied to music that's radically different from from mm-hmm. what uh, from what he's been associated Not with. Not guitar rock. Yeah. Right, exactly. I think it's very important in that regard. I think it's mm. underrated. A lot of people, I remember the Rolling Stone review at the time, I was so like, why is Pennebaker wasting his time with these people, essentially, and all right. that? These stupid half-cyborgs, completely missing the point of the yeah. film. Yeah. Because the genius thing about it is this. This is not a... Dylan-ish portrayal or, you know, intentionally, like, you know, intentionally playing up image portrayal as you see in Don't Look Down. This is not a end of the end of the uh, persona portrayal as it is with uh, the Ziggy Stardust film. In fact, he doesn't really talk much with the band at all. He's flying the wall at many moments with them and their close management and the chief roadies. There's a great interview sequence with Alan Wilder where basically Alan Wilder is, it's the spinal tap moment you could say, but he's actually showing how the keyboards work. And it's actually a great technological moment. How do you create these sounds for this large thing? Well, this is what the tools I'm using. This is how I'm doing it. This is good. This is sort of a demonstration showing you don't just simply press a button there's you know there's the there's a technique to yeah there's a yeah. technique and there's something you're working with and it's I use the tools but what's interesting too is this and I remember thinking about this for years and I was vindicated when Penny Baker said as much in the liner notes for the DVD reissue they invented reality TV with that movie because they invented the real world oh. because the sub the subplot of the film as such a bunch of New York kids entered and won a contest to be part of this film. And they were filmed taking a bus. They took a bus journey across the country to go to the Rose Bowl thing. And one of the camera folks, one of uh, Panda Baker's assistants, was with them filming as they went. Oh. And so you've got a bunch of like you know late teens, early twenties folks in an enclosed <laughs> environment interacting and dealing with each other and having arguments about Kinda life, goth, love, and like philosophies. Some are goths and some are fashionists and some yeah. are more jockish types. It's a great portrayal of the time and place. It's fascinating. It's like wow. oh, I remember all this. Yeah. Uh-huh. And just how they inter- dealing with people as they go across the country and all that. And you know, it, it's fly on the wall stuff. There's no plot to it. They're just all these moments put together. And the great thing about it is you're like, wait a minute, this feels really familiar. And apparently the film, that part of the film attracted somebody at MTV so much they, that, that they either approached Pennebaker or someone that came up, sort of like, hey, about this or whatever. Or when the idea first came out, it was clearly trying to do oh, that. Wow. It was clearly trying to see, like apply that right. to something that could be more MTV Because Real World controlled. was first in 92. Right. And this yeah. film came yeah. out in 89. Yeah. Right. Or 90, maybe. 91 might have been. Yeah. 90, 91 for the show. Yeah. I think it was 91, 92. Yeah. But the film came out 
out in 89. No, right. it is clearly, clearly the source. They oh, realize that the dynamics of the, of the these kids fans, right. these, these is much more people. interesting yeah. than and, the celebrities. Because it's right. real. It's yeah. Real. yeah. Was the first one here in San Francisco? No, the first one's New York City. Oh, the second yeah. one's San Francisco. Oh, so, yeah. 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 So, so that's why I think it's an extremely fascinating documentary. Mm-hmm. And when you think about how much reality TV has come from that moment right yeah. there. I yeah. mean, this is, this real is, World this was the pioneer. Yeah, this is the rough draft. So much came from since then. So it's it's essential there. So I mentioned two music documentaries, but let me mention a doc final one, actual documentary documentary about something else <laughs> is uh, and that is uh, and that is the summit. And the summit is uh, is based on we have heard over time, or there's there's like John Krakauer's book Into Thin Air about the disastrous climb of Everest in the late '90s, where a number of people died. This was about a climb done on the second highest mountain in the Himalayas, K2, which oh, is yeah, which, which is seen by a lot of mountaineers as being the real challenge. Right. Everest is actually kind of straightforward in comparison, right? And the height is not that much different. And uh, the, let's just say that a disaster happened on this one too. Yeah. And it's a very it's a much it much different film from from uh from deep water um but uh there's a lot of documentary footage as well as a lot of reconstructions that are actually very skillfully done i had yeah. to watch it a few times going like wait a minute yeah. okay clearly they damn they did that really well and all i'll say is is that there's one there are a couple of moments when there's footage from when from the actual climbers who made it to the top and they're looking around and it's just like wow it's the top of the world you're seeing this balance and then you see this one huge shadow going off to the horizon, and you realize, my God, it's this monstrous shadow of K2. Yeah. And it's this overwhelming thing, and the sheer size of it, and the sense of perspective, even yeah. on a small screen, you're just like, to be there, I'd, I'd fall off the mountain. Yeah. That's just the type of thing that just, just shocks that you. Documentary that documentary is you. generally in like a top 100. I always see the summit like in top 100 documentaries kind of uh, lists. It is a great documentary. Well, thank you so much, Ned. This was, <laughs> this was fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Not a problem at all. And thank you for letting me talk my ear off, which anyone who knows me will not be surprised about at all. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank Thanks. you. Thanks for listening. You can find episodes of SubDoc on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Please review, subscribe, and rate. And you can follow us on Twitter at SubDocPodcast and online at SubDocPodcast.com. This show is produced by Will Scoville, and our theme music is by David Siegel. If you want to suggest a documentary or a future guest, please email us at SubDocPodcast at gmail.com.